and uh, we're going to get into the Word of God tonight, chapter 19 in 2 Kings as we continue forward, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week uh, at the end of chapter 18, and we see Hezekiah who is reassured by Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah would have been his contemporary living in that day. And we see him being assured by, by Isaiah that God will, in fact, help him in his time of turmoil and trial as the king. So let's begin with prayer. Lord, this evening as we gather, we know that there are people in our fellowship that are hurting, those who are struggling with, with health issues, those who are facing loss. Uh, think of Melanie Vance and, and the passing of her mother. There are many different situations that, that go on on a weekly basis in the lives of the people of Bureau Bible Fellowship. And then beyond our church family, our connected friends and family members and others that we are neighbors. There's just so many needs. And it is overwhelming to us at times to think through it all. But Lord, I am so thankful that you are there. That's what the scripture says in the Hebrew, Jehovah Shammah the God who is there. So while we don't know every situation, we know that you do. And we also know that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. So be with those tonight that are hurting. Be with those who are alone or lonely. Be with those who are in time of grief and bereavement. Be with those who, Lord, uh, are just feeling a little disenfranchised. They feel like they're outside the loop on what's happening. I pray, God, that you would just come near to them and they would sense your presence this evening and that your word would encourage them and would inspire them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 19 has to be one of the great chapters in the Bible because it shows God's sovereignty and power in a narrative form, in a storyline. We should find chapter 19 extremely encouraging and comforting because when you and I face dire circumstances, when we put ourselves oftentimes in a difficult place by our own poor decision-making or, or, or sin, what can we expect the outcome to be in those situations? What can we expect? Where do we go from that place of knowing that we're wrong and now suffering a full weight or consequence of our wrong action. Where do we go? To whom do we turn for help? Well, all of this depends on our understanding of God. The answers, the right answers to those questions, are having a right understanding of God. I want to read something to you, and I'd like you to write it down. It's a quote from A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer. I believe Tozer pastored in Illinois, in the Chicago area. I could be wrong on that, but he was a great uh, a theologian. More importantly, he was a pastor. He had a shepherd's heart. And he, made, he, wrote, he wrote a book, and by the way, I would highly, highly, highly recommend this book, called The Pursuit of God. There you go. That's right, Sandy, I remember you, you asked me about that, and you read it. It is, it is a classic and if you are wanting to recover an intimate relationship with God, if you're wanting your worship of God in a personal way to go deeper, you, you want to get this book. It's not a man's opinion. He's going to take the scripture and open it up to you like a teacher would on a Wednesday night Bible study. But it is profound. It is good. And listen to this quote. Write this one down. What comes into our minds... When we think about God, just get that first part. What comes into our minds when we think about God? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, how you see God, how you know God, how you understand God, how you can, can understand His attributes, His character, 
what you know about him says a lot about you. It is the most important thing about you, that you know God, the God of the Bible. And a lot of people, when they get into trial and trouble, they, they actually kind of hide, a lot like Adam and Eve did in the garden when they got in trouble. They hid from God. Why? Because they didn't know God. They didn't know Him to that degree. And many people today will go and hide. But when I understand the character and nature of God, that God is sovereign, that God is before me, that He is the master planner of everything and nothing, including my, my wrong decisions, my sinful behavior, my wrong attitude, nothing is hidden from Him, and He knew it before I did it. That's called foreknowledge. God has it. So, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That is one of the most misunderstood and missing doctrines in the Bible for many Christians. We need a right understanding of God's divine providence and sovereignty. Tonight's chapter is going to lay it out for us beautifully. Again, I think it's one of the best chapters in the whole Bible on the sovereignty and divine providence of God. Now, let's talk about divine providence before we get to our text. I want to just set this up. I, this is a long chapter. I don't think we're going to get through it all tonight, so don't worry about that. Uh, we're not trying to accomplish a lot. We just want to bite off a chunk and chew it, you know? Uh, you got to chew your food well, and uh, so we're going to just take a piece. But let me, let, me, uh, let me talk about divine providence, and here's why. Because we all come from various backgrounds in church, different ty types of churches, different kinds of preachers, preachers who see theology a little different from each other. But there are some found foundational truths about God that I don't care what church you're from, these should have been poured into you. I've got to say that I grew up in a good church, loving people, a tremendous pastor in terms of his preaching ability and his, his shepherding. But I don't think he really laid out a clear understanding, as I remember the messages from the time I was probably in my mid-teens up, I don't remember messages on the divine providence of God or on the sovereignty of God. And that's not rare. That, that's, that's happening a lot of places today. And I think we live in a generation today that is the most biblically illiterate generation that's ever lived. And I think our churches are filled with people who are biblically illiterate, who say they believe certain things, but they have no clue how to show you from Scripture why they believe what they believe. Or they don't understand the doctrine of what they believe. They just know I believe it. And why do they believe it? Because somebody told me that's the way it is. But they have no clue. So let's talk about divine providence tonight. Divine providence is the governance of God by which He, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. Now, I want you to just try to fathom that. Wrap your brain around that. Nothing ever happens in the universe. Forget about Vero Beach. In the universe, nothing ever happens that God is not fully aware of. Now, that alone, does that not expand your understanding of God a little bit? Okay, The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. The doctrine of divine providence is that He is sovereign over the universe as a whole. That's in Psalm 103, verse 19, by the way. I'm going to give you some scripture to back up what I'm saying. These are not my opinions. Psalm 103, 19. The, he's, he's sovereign over the physical world. The material world, the physical world, that would be Matthew 5.45. Matthew 5.45. He is sovereign over the affairs of all the nations. That would be Psalm 66, verse 7. He, he's sovereign over the affairs of the nations. Psalm 66, 7. He's, he's sovereign over human destiny. People talk about my destiny. This is going to be 
I declare, I'm going to do this. This is my destiny. No, God is the one who holds destiny for every human being. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. He's sovereign over human successes. Listen now. He's sovereign over human successes and failures. He doesn't just claim a victory when you're successful. He claims responsibility when you're not. Because he's working through the failure. You do know that without failure, you would not lean into and trust God more. When do you grow the most? When you're going through a hard time. Why are you going through a hard time? Because something didn't go right. God's behind all of that. He knows that there's only certain situations or, or environments that you'll grow in. And so he allows you to go through those environments. So he's, he's, he's sovereign over human successes and failures. That's Luke chapter 1, verse 52. And he's also sovereign over the protection of his people. That's Psalm 4, verse 8. Psalm 4, verse 8. He's sovereign over the protection of his people. So this doctrine of the divine providence of God stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by chance or fate. It is not. Nothing has ever happened that was by chance. God was fully aware. Through divine providence, God... By the way, did you know that every single book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, every single one of them gives you a different picture or focus or it points you to Jesus Christ. Every book in the Old Testament has a way of pointing you to Jesus. Every book in the New Testament points you to Jesus. You can't do that unless you've masterfully laid it out. So all of the Bible was laid out by God the Father. Now, how does divine providence relate to human choice? Man's will. Because just as the Bible clearly teaches us about the sovereignty of God, the Bible also teaches about the responsibility of man. There's no way of getting around that, folks. And I know that some people want to lay all of it on the sovereignty of God and say that there is no human will or, or choice. Others want to take human choice and lift it up and say that God's not really fully aware of everything. He lets some things just play out the way, the way they play out. Let's man make the decision. I'm going to tell you that both of them are in the Bible, and there's a plethora of passages to support human responsibility, human will, and God's sovereignty. And I'm going to say to you, I have no clue how it all fits together. I don't. It is beyond me to understand. But here's what I do believe. God's not confused by it. Amen? God sees it. He understands it. So, uh, to ensure that his purposes are fulfilled, God governs the affairs of men and works through the natural order of things. He uses the laws of nature that he set, by the way. Laws of nature are not a result of a big bang, and they just kind of created themselves. God set everything in order, including the natural laws that you and I live by and under. There's nothing in the universe that God has not set. And the laws of nature have no inherent power to themselves. They are the principles that God set in place to govern how things normally work. They are only laws because... God decreed them. Remember he said in Genesis, let there be light. And he separated the light from the darkness. He spoke it. It didn't just happen. It wasn't happenstance. This, this is our God. So how does divine providence relate to human choice? We know that humans have a free will, but we also know that God is sovereign. How those two truths relate to each other is hard for us to understand. But we see examples of both in the Scripture. God hates sin, and He will judge sinners. 
yet he knew there would be sin before sin came to this earth. He was not surprised when Lucifer, one of the archangels, who was an literally built into Lucifer, he was an instrument. He had jewels. God created him, beautiful jewels. He was the worship leader in heaven, Lucifer. And when he chose to rise up in rebellion against God, and God cast him out of heaven, none of that was a surprise to God. So long before the earth was, or before man was on the earth, God already knew that Lucifer would be in the garden as a serpent, and he would try to deceive. And again, you say, well, why, if God is, has all the power in earth, why would, he, why, would, why would he just not stop that? Don't let it even happen. Don't even create Lucifer if you know he's going to do what he did. Again, when do you grow? When you're going through trials. When do you learn how to truly trust God? It's when you know you've messed up and you have nowhere else to turn. How do you know that there is this thing called forgiveness coming from God? Because God allowed there to be sin so that you would need to understand and receive forgiveness. I wish I could understand all that. I can't. It blows my mind. But one thing I'm not confused on is the fact that my God knows everything that ever happened to me in my life, and He knew it before it happened, and He knows my future, every detail. He is a God I can trust. He is a God who has a plan, and His plan is never to fulfill my will. His plan is to fulfill His will through me. That is why I am here tonight. I am doing the will of the Lord to teach this Bible. It is God's plan, not mine. I didn't choose it. God chose me. So every one of you are in the same boat. Every one of us are the same. So God's never tempted anyone with sin or evil. He won't do that. And he doesn't condone sin. Yet, he knew from the beginning there was sin. Can anybody fully understand all that? Good, because I don't either. Sin and evil play a role in God's masterful plan. They just do. So he allows it temporarily. I got a call today from my daughter. My, my grandson, Easton, he has these biblical theological questions. And tonight's question was, did, was Satan, uh, is he still in the form of a serpent? And, and because God said, you know, you're going to be, well, no, he's not. That's just figurative. In other words, what's the lowest thing on the earth? You can't get any lower than a snake, right? The belly of a snake crawls on the earth. That's how God sees Satan. He is the lowest of all creation. And yet, he's, he's not just a serpent. He can, be, he can manifest in different ways, as the Scripture shows, just like demonic spirits. And yet, God knows all that. And God will use Satan, just like He used Judas Iscariot, to fulfill His master plan of putting Jesus on the cross. He actually used evil for good. Isn't that cool? Uh, here's, a, here's a case of divine providence. The story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. God allowed Joseph's brothers to kidnap Joseph. They sold him as a slave and then lied to their father for years that, that he was dead, that his, you know, he's gone. That's wicked. And that's part of God's plan. Okay? That's wicked. God, and God was displeased with what they did. But He knew they would do it. Yet at the same time, all of their sin worked together 
for a greater good. Joseph ends up in Egypt of all places where he was made the prime minister. Joseph used his position to sustain the people of a broad region during a seven-year famine, including his own family. If Joseph had not been in Egypt before the famine began, millions of people, including the Israelites, would have died, including his family. So how did God get Joseph to Egypt? He providentially allowed his brothers the freedom to sin. Explain that one. Somehow I never learned that in, in Sunday school. But that's the truth. God's divine providence is directly acknowledged in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Let me give you another case of divine providence in Scripture where uh, God overrides sin in the story of Judas Iscariot. I just mentioned him. But everything that Judas did, he lied, he deceived, he cheated, he stole money, and then finally he betrays Jesus with a kiss. I mean, this guy is wicked to the core. And then he hands Jesus over to the enemy. Okay? All of this was a great wickedness, and God was displeased. Yet, at the same time, all of Judas's plotting and scheming led to a greater good, the salvation of mankind. Can you get a greater good than that on the earth? Than people being saved, reconciled back to God the Father? Through the wicked acts of a, just a terrible person. If Jesus had not been crucified, we would still be in our sins. How did God get Christ to the cross? He used wicked Jews, chief priests, religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, Romans, Roman leaders, Judas Iscariot. He used wicked people to get Jesus where Jesus needed to be at the right moment. And by the way, Jesus knew all of this too. He knew that there was a specific, exact time and date that he would have to be on that cross to suffer as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. And God delivered on his master plan down to the very hour. Wow. What an awesome God. Jesus plainly states that God used the wicked performance of, of Judas to bring about good in Luke twenty two twenty two, Listen, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined by the Father, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So while Judas is literally carrying out God's masterful plan, he's also the one who of his own human responsibility chose to do it, and he is destined for eternal damnation. Judas, thrown in the same lake of fire that Satan and every demonic spirit and force will be put into. Again, I don't understand all this. I can't help you beyond the fact that I can state the character and the nature of God. And how you think about God is the most important thing about you. You need this. So Jesus, Jesus taught both the sovereignty of God, that the Son of Man goes as it, as it has been determined, and the responsibility of man. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. See the balance? Divine providence is taught in Romans 8.28, a passage that all of us, or many of us, have memorized. I don't think we understand it because we never read 29, 30, and 31. We should, but we don't. But, but Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things. Not certain things. All things. For those who are called according to, not my purpose, His purpose. If you are in Christ, you are called to His purpose. And if you are called to His purpose, then all things will work together for good. You say, well, I don't understand it, and I don't feel it, because what's happened to me is awful and terrible, and I'm miserable, and I'm angry, and I just don't get it. Well, you better settle that issue with God, because God's working His good through you. You just haven't seen the good come out yet. 
And once he gets that sour spirit out of you, he can sweeten you up, and all of a sudden he starts using you in your story of pain and suffering to help others who are suffering. Amen? That's what we have to remember. All things means this in the Greek. All things means all things. He's never out of control. Satan can do his worst, but even the evil that is tearing the world apart is working toward a, a greater final purpose that God has in store. And God didn't hide that purpose from us. He reveals it to us in the end, what's going to play out, what's going to happen. Amen? We can't see it yet, but we know that God allows for things with a reason in mind. And how frustrating that must be for Satan to make all these attacks on an ongoing basis because his inclination, his nature is evil. His nature is wickedness. So that's just what he does. But every single time God thwarts his plans and uses his evil actions and behaviors and attitudes for, his, for God's own good. Is God in control? I'm asking you. You better believe it. God in eternity past, in the counsel of His own will, ordained everything that will happen, yet in no sense is God the author of sin, nor is human responsibility removed. The primary means by which God accomplishes His will is through secondary causes. That's like laws of nature and human choice. In other words, God will usually work indirectly to accomplish His will. But there are times where He moves in our individual lives. He sometimes works directly in us to accomplish His will. And these works are what we can call miracles. We can call them, it just goes beyond nature. It goes beyond the laws of nature. And God has been known to do that a few times, hasn't He? Amen. So get the right picture. Listen to what Paul says. Write it down if you want. Philippians 1.6. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Until Jesus Christ returns and establishes His kingdom, you can be rest assured that everything will work together for good. God's doing a work in you, and He will bring it to completion. Amen. I hope you're just gaining encouragement, and strength thinking about your God this evening. Amen? We could go the whole hour. I mean, we've already gone half of an hour. And just thinking about who God is and how much He loves us and what He's done for us and what He can do that we cannot do. Let me just close this down and say, if God is not in control of all things, then He's not sovereign either. Okay? And if He's not sovereign, that means He's not God. That's what makes Him God, that He's sovereign. He's over all things. Here's the bottom line. Divine providence does not destroy our freedom. The opposite's true. Divine providence takes our freedom into account, and in the infinite wisdom of our Father, He sets a course to fulfill His will in you. Isn't that wonderful? So now let's look at this chapter and let's understand this about God and how He works with Hezekiah. This is a beautiful picture of divine sovereignty and divine providence. Verse 1, chapter 19, As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, what did he hear? He heard what the representatives of this Assyrian king, Sennacherib, had said about how they were going to seize Jerusalem and they were going to drive the people out, haul them off with hooks, and, and actually they used like the bridle of a horse. They would put holes in the sides of your, of your jaw and they would drive and make a bridle. That's literally how they took the people of God away in, the northern, in, the, in Israel, in the northern kingdom. And they were trying to threaten, they were trying to scare, they were trying to put dread in Hezekiah and the citizens of Jerusalem, the holy city. And they were successful early on. And this is what he's doing. Remember now, Hezekiah has said, because he stopped paying tribute to the Assyrians, 
And then he backed up and said, well, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't have done that. I should have kept paying. So let me, let me uh, make it right. What do I owe you? Well, the guy just really laid it on him heavy. And he paid it. He did it. But they're not letting up. They're going to come in and take. So here he is. He tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Now, what you're thinking is, Hezekiah is a mess. And he doesn't know where to turn and what to do, and he's just really in trouble. So he tears his clothes and he runs to the house of the Lord and doesn't know what... That's not the... That's, you're getting the wrong picture. That's not it. The tearing of clothes, okay, is a picture of divine repentance. He is actually repenting before God for saying what he said to the Assyrian king, that I made a mistake, I should have given you tribute. He's actually repenting for softening his stance on God in front of the king and the king's men. Okay? And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth. They too had to repent. To the prophet Isaiah, the son of Ammon, or Amaz. And they said to Isaiah, so he sends his representatives to Isaiah. And here's what they said to Isaiah. Thus says Hezekiah, this day is the day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. So the tearing of clothes and the wearing of sackcloth, uh, and, and the sackcloth was like a, a really rough burlap sack material, okay? They were expressions. These are expressions of deep mourning. They're mourning what has happened because they have kind of taken their eyes off of the Lord. Uh, you would have this, this tearing of sackcloth and, ashes, sackcloth and ashes, usually for the death of a loved one. You're in mourning. You're grieving. Okay? So Hezekiah report, re receives this report regarding Rabshakeh, who is the representative of the Assyrian king, and he knows how serious it is. And so he describes it. Interestingly, he, he said... Uh, it's a day of distress, rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. He's in such agony over the situation he's created, and now this, this Assyrian king has the upper hand, that he, he describes himself like a woman who's pregnant, giving birth, and she runs out of strength. She can't push anymore. And in that day, that, mean, that meant death for the mom and the baby in most cases. That's how he sees his king, kingship. That's how he sees Jerusalem. Okay? One thing we can say about Hezekiah here, though, is that he read the situation accurately. Sometimes when you and I face some kind of a trial, you know, that we're going through or a difficulty that comes up out of nowhere, uh, we handle it poorly because we never see the situation accurately. What's the first thing you do when a trial comes your way, when a test comes your way, when something shows up that you weren't looking for, you didn't know it was coming, and bam, it just hits you. What do you do? You over-worry. Am I right? You start running through your mind all the worst-case scenarios. We overplay it. And you'll go weeks and just in your mind, you're in your head, and you've got this thing where it looks like there's no hope, no way, nothing's gonna good's gonna come out of it. I'm sunk, I'm done. That's where we get. He didn't do that. He took this matter to Isaiah, the prophet of God, the guy who speaks for God. He knew it was serious. He felt like a woman who couldn't push any longer. Dire situation, but I'm going to take it to God, the prophet of God. So not only did he read the dire situation accurately, but he also didn't allow his grief and despair to overtake him. Because Hezekiah did not reject the Lord's power. He didn't reject the Lord's help. He knew this was a more necessary time than ever to seek the Lord. That's the right way that a Christian should respond to a setback. This is now more than ever the right time for me to seek the Lord. 
your family around you, what are we going to do? Oh my goodness, I, everybody's freaking out, and you need to say, you do what you want, but I'm going to go and get on my face before God. I'm taking this problem to the Lord. My God has a way. And that's what David did when his men were off fighting and went to Ziklag. They, get back, they go back to the camp down in the land of the Philistines to their families after war, and they come home, and the families, they find out, have all been hauled off by the enemy. And their little village that they were living in was completely ransacked. And, and, and the men looked at David and said, you're the reason. We shouldn't have gone to war with you. Now look, we've lost our wives. We've lost our children. We're in serious trouble. They, it says in the scripture that they were ready to pick up stones and stone David to death. David, it says, grabbed the ephod, which is the, the, the chest plate that the priest would wear when they would enter the Holy of Holies. He grabbed an ephod, he put it on, and he went off in the mountain. And he, it says, he inquired of the Lord. I know what my men want to do. I know how frantic they are. I feel it too. My family's gone too. But he didn't run and get crazy with it. He went to the Lord with it. And you know what the Lord told him? You will recover everything you've lost. Don't fear and don't be worried. And they ex that's exactly what happened. And so here Hezekiah is doing the right thing. Something else that Hezekiah did that was good, he sought out the word of the Lord given by the prophet Isaiah. He went to the right person. When trouble comes your way, isn't it interesting how Satan will put the people that are closest to you are the wrong voices? You ever notice that? If somebody hears about your situation, usually the person that's going to come to you first or want to get close to you in that situation is somebody who has a word that's not from God. They're going to try to give you human advice and give you human answers and try to give you... And what you need to do, listen, you're not going to... You need to seek out a godly person who understands in their own life how to trust God when things are tough. That's the person you want to spend time with. Does that make sense? So in your mind... In your mind right now, who is that person? There ought to be more than one that you can come up with in your mind. Somebody that you would go to when things are really difficult. Because the voices around, there's a thousand voices, but there's only one voice you need to hear. You need somebody who will stand on the truth of the Word of God with you. Who will pray with you for God's Word to come to pass in your life. That's the person you need. Well, we're, we're at verse 3. Okay. Um, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. It may be that the Lord your God, verse 4, heard all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So this is what Hezekiah sent to Isaiah, okay? And Hezekiah knew that their hope, their only hope, was that God would take the offense at the blasphemies of Rabshakeh. Because that guy was just proud and arrogant and haughty and talked down about God. He put God on the same level. He said, what are you, what are you hanging on to, this God? Uh, have you not seen the nations that we've conquered? They were at the time. At that moment, they were the greatest empire on the earth. Have you not seen the cities, the fortified cities that we've crushed? Have you not seen the gods of all these nations that we've overpowered? How's your God any different? Oh, man. When Hezekiah heard that, he's like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You think you just put my God on the same level of all these other gods. You just blasphemed the one true and living God. That's what he took to Isaiah. Okay, so already Hezekiah knows that his God is sovereign and is mighty and is, has a master plan. He's not worried about that. Okay, now, so he comes to, he comes to Isaiah, the, the servants of Hezekiah come to Isaiah. Verse 6, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. It's interesting. He said, these men that have come to you from Assyria, 
They are the servants of the Assyrian king. Don't, don't be afraid of their words. Okay? And then the last part, I love it. Uh, they've, they've reviled me. Don't take it personal. Their issue is more with me than it is you. That means, let me handle this for you. Some battles, listen church, some battles are not for you to fight. In fact, I would say most of the battles are not for you to fight. You're to stand on the truth. God will go to battle for you. You don't have to give a response. You don't have to defend your name. People know you. Only those who are out to do wicked will try to slander your name. Everybody else knows you because they've seen how you've lived your life. They've watched you closely. And the reality is that person who's coming at you, their issue is more with God than it is with you. They just don't know it. But they're going to learn because God will not be mocked. And that's what they're doing. And so we need to be careful there. Isaiah just really gives it to him. So, without hesitation, he spoke as if he were speaking for the Lord. Now, that's interesting, because look what he said. They, they bring this report to Isaiah, and Isaiah probably already heard about it, because God has a way of getting things to his, his prophets. And then it says, Isaiah said, thus says the Lord. Now, i got to tell you, there's a lot of people today, a lot of people, who say, thus saith the Lord. Well, here's what the Lord told me. Here's what the Lord said to me. And it's bizarre stuff. People who say that they were in the shower and God showed up and spoke to them about some things. And this is, what, this is exactly what he told me. I just saw a video of Beth Moore. And she was saying how she was at an airport or somewhere and there was a man sitting there, and the Lord said, I want you to witness to that man. And she gave every reason in the book why she couldn't do it. Oh, my goodness, no. I don't know that man. I can't. And the Lord, and the Lord said to me, I didn't say you needed to witness to him. I said, I want you to comb his hair. She said the Lord told her to do that. Now, I'm going to tell you right now. Oh, a lot of people who need to go back and do a back check on what the Lord says. Because here's what I know about the Lord. Whatever He tells us, it's according to His Word. I don't need to hear a voice of the Lord saying something to me that's already here in the Word of God. In the same way that I don't need some experience with some sign or some wonder for me to have faith to believe God. Jesus actually came down upon the Galileans because he said, you don't believe unless there's a sign. What's wrong with you? I went to Samaria. They believed by my words. They didn't need a sign. Well, guess what? All the signs and wonders are recorded right here, every one of them. So now God's like, why don't you just believe what I've given you in the signs and wonders? Believe them. Believe that I'm a God that's in control, that I can handle your matters. Trust in me. Trust the fact that I ne will never leave you nor forsake you. You don't need another experience. You need to just trust and believe what God's already given you. That's the problem. The problem is we want to walk by sight and not by faith. Walk by faith. Then you don't have to go running around looking for some other sign. We can get silly with that stuff. And here, you know, when Isaiah said, thus says the Lord, you better believe it was the Lord. So much so that it was canonized in the Bible. Now, nobody today who's saying, thus says the Lord, gets their words in the Bible. Okay? So chalk it up that way. All right? And it is interesting how when people say, thus says the Lord, what they generally will say to you is something so vague or so general that, well, that could happen. Be like going into a me going up and preaching in some church, you know, and getting up there and then saying, you know, I just sense the Lord telling me right now that there's somebody here who has a cough in the room. I mean, my chances are pretty good that somebody has a cough. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's not the kind of word that Isaiah gave. Look what look, listen to this now. 
Listen, listen to the specifics here. He says, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Syria have reviled me. That's a specific word. And he gets even more specific. Verse 7, behold, I will put a spirit in him. In who? In the king of Assyria. So that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now that's distinct. That is definitive. Let me tell you what you do with that when somebody says, thus saith the Lord, with Isaiah. You go, okay, we're going to find out whether he really is a prophet of God or not. Because in time, this guy's either going to die the way he said he would die, or he's not. There's either going to be a rumor that's going to scare him enough to have him leave Jerusalem and go home, or there's not. This is a true word from God. God, you can test God that way in terms of his promises. They always prove true. Promises today that are made, these prophecies that are made, they're so general, they would never give you something that specific because how many people said this last time these prophets, they're false prophets, and they said that Donald Trump was going to win the presidency again. And, and now listen, listen, there's still prophets today. Those guys are still, they're still the prophets. They were wrong. People didn't chalk it up and go, uh, no, that didn't happen. You're a false prophet. They're still going to them and letting them speak these words over them. It's silly. It's ridiculous. Not Isaiah. Look, verse 6, last part. Do not be afraid because the words that you have heard with which the servant of the king of Syria has reviled me. By the way, the word servants there, when he speaks of the, king's, the Assyrian king's servants, listen to this. Interesting, very interesting in the Hebrew. It speaks, when it says servant, the servants of the king of Assyria, it's the lackey. These guys are lackeys. These guys are pawns. They're minions. They came to you to try to put fear and dread in you. They're nothing but a bunch of lackeys. Why would you ever be afraid of the words that these men say? So God is deliberate. When he says servants there, he's deliberately belittling the perceived threat that these representatives were trying to impose. And with that, the Lord assured Hezekiah that he would indeed deal with, the, with Rabshakeh. And he had heard his blasphemy and would bring judgment against him. Okay? So verse 8. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning uh, Tirakah, king of Cush. That would be down in Africa. So that's a... That's a, a uh, a different commander who's commanding the Egyptian army. They're working together to come up and help Jerusalem. And if you remember, that's one of the things that Hezekiah did. He reached down to the Egyptians and said, we need your help. And, and, and the king of Assyria laughed it off. What are they going to do? How are they going to help you? They're, they're weak, okay? Uh, now the king heard concerning uh, Tirakah, uh, king of Cush, behold, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria, uh, kings of Assyria have done to all the lords, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? So they're still trying, even though they've heard this word, they're still trying to act tough. Only now they're not acting quite as tough. Okay? It'd be like somebody out on their highway and all of a sudden this an incident at, a, at an intersection where road rage takes place. And some guy's in his car and he's been beeping that horn at the car in front of him because that person didn't move quick enough once the light turned green. And he is fed up, hot, mad, and he jumps out. Of, he puts it in, in park, jumps out of the car, throws his chest back, goes walking up. And all of a sudden the door opens on that car in front of him. And a guy six foot five, 285 pounds, steps out, turns, and looks at him. He's not going to go, oh, okay. He's going to go, uh, uh, you shouldn't, you. See, he's softening a little bit. That's what the king of Assyria was facing. That's what these men, his, his servants, were facing. 
So while the Rabshakeh was away, the Syrians learned that Egyptian troops under an Ethiopian king were advancing from the south. This would be the Egyptian intervention Assyria feared most and that many in Judah trusted in. Now, it's wrong to trust in the, in the Egyptians, but it's also God who uses even our bad decisions for His good. We've already studied that, right? So Isaiah, as he had prophesied, it would come to nothing. In other words, the Egyptians aren't going to do anything, and they didn't. So God wasn't wanting Hezekiah to lean on the Egyptians, but it did work in that moment, okay? Verse 10, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will be, not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers, fathers destroyed? And he calls out these great nations, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Seraphim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva or Iva? Hezekiah had to be thrilled to hear this guy running his mouth comparing the one true God to all these other ridiculous gods and kings and, and, and cities. I just think that's so awesome. You don't want to blaspheme the one true and living God. You don't want to act like you are greater than He is. And that's what this guy... This guy thinks his people were the ones that took out these other nations. Not realizing, no, God gave those nations to you. You just don't know it. Not yet. Psalm 33, verse 13 through 19. Let's write it down. Psalm 33, 13 to 19. Let me read it for you. Psalm 33, 13 to 19. I was asked to go and uh, um, pray a prayer at the Republican club here in Vero at the fairground. And there were a big bunch of folks that came out and they had a guest speaker. You know, I think it was uh, Ann Coulter or somebody. Anyway, so they asked me to do the opening prayer. I sat in the back watching all these folks get all excited and do their thing. And then it was time for me to go to the mic and give a prayer. Walked up. And here was my prayer. This is what I prayed. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and ob observes their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Amen. Never gave another word, only the Scripture. And that's exactly what the king of Assyria did. He walked into a trap, blaspheming the one true God, not realizing it was actually God who gave him all of his victories. He had no clue. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord Interesting. So the first time, he sends men to Isaiah, or I, I, yeah, Isaiah, to get a word from the Lord, right? Now, he himself goes to the temple court. He doesn't go in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest can go in there. But he goes into the temple court, and he stretches out, prostrate, and puts out this, this message from Isaiah, from God. And he prays to God the Father. This is an Old Testament. Listen, this is a king who's seeking God himself. Pretty cool. And look what he says. He prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. 
So he's, he's actually praying what Isaiah has told him. He did exactly what any child of God should do with such a letter. He took it to the house of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord. And, and so he took this letter from this, the, 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 uh, the messengers of the, of the Assyrian king, and he just took it to God himself. That's how we should respond, right? In, the New Test- in his New Testament epistle, Peter encouraged the believers in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Notice how in verse 14, Hezekiah reacted to the threat differently than he did the first time. This time he didn't go to Isaiah. He made a beeline for the temple, and he just laid it before the Lord himself. I love that. But he wasn't wrong going to Isaiah. That was the right thing to do. He got a confirmation from Isaiah. But now he has the confidence to go ahead and just lay it before God, this, this, this message that was given. Verse 17, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. Boy, he has a right view of God and a right understanding of the gods of this world. They're fake. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. What a great prayer. Why are you praying for your family members to be saved? Why are you praying for God's righteousness to advance and for wickedness to be turned back on this earth? For one reason, that the world may know, that your families, family members may know that there is only one God and only His name is great. Everything we do as believers should be to make the name of the Lord great on the earth. Amen? That's the bottom line. That's what it's about. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Listen to this word from God about Sennacherib. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. And for the rest of the chapter, we have a glorious answer to the prayer that Hezekiah prayed before God. But when it says she despises you, she scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion, the idea is that the Assyrians had come to ravage the city of Jerusalem, the daughters of Zion, okay? The idea is that they wanted to ravage, but God would not allow it to happen. They had plans to take out Jerusalem. God said, ain't going to happen. All these victories that you've had and all the cities you've fortified and knocked down, all the sieges that you've won, I'm telling you today, it all comes to an end. It's not going to happen here. One commentary said it this way. A theologian said, Jerusalem is represented here as a young girl rebuffing with contempt the unwelcome advancement of a peasant. (laughs) I love that. We're not talking about a warlord. We're talking about a peasant. That's how God sees the king of Assyria. You're a peasant. Your people are peasants. You're a peasant. And here you think you're going to come in and have your way with our daughters? Are you nuts? It ain't going to happen. So I think we ought to stop there. We'll pick up at verse 22 next week. It's only going to get better. It's really cool because now we just see God responding. And man, does God just lay it out there. I mean... He is like carving up a turkey on Thanksgiving Day, he's, and he's having fun doing it. And uh, we ought to rest in that tonight. Let's go back to what Tozer said. What you think about God is the mo- most important thing about you. Get a right picture of God in your life right now, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your whatever it is you're going through. You get the right picture of God and let God become sovereign, and let his divine providence, because it's going to happen. Why don't you line up with his divine providence and just say, 
Lord, whatever you bring, I'm good with it. Let's go. I'm with you. Amen? Father, thank you tonight for this time in the Word. We thank you for this wonderful chapter where we see how much you are in control and how nothing happens without your full knowledge and awareness. I pray, God, that you would uh, just allow each of us to travel home safely now and that the fellowship that follows would be rich, be with those who are live streaming. Maybe some could not be here for different reasons, but Lord, bless them and watch over them in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you this weekend, 10 a.m. God bless.